When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Latter-day Takes. Uh, on today's episode, a good friend of mine joins us, Lisa Roger. Perspective of race in the church, Utah, culture, all that stuff. Lisa is a black woman who uh, grew up primarily in Southern California. We get into all that. And of mine, we get along really well, not just because of our shared love of Seinfeld, sports, and tacos, but because she and I have great discussions, and we don't agree on a lot of different ways of looking at things, but I always respect her opinion, and I always value it. So that's why I wanted to bring Lisa on. You know, we're, we're able to have really civil conversations, and I, I appreciate her perspective because her life is very different from my own. And so I thought, you know what? Bring her on. She can share that with others, and we could just put it out there together. And this one went so well, um, there needs to be a part two. So... I'm actually going to bring her back sometime probably next month and we'll uh, do a second half because she really wanted to talk about blacks and the priesthood and her thoughts on that. So anyway, without further ado, please enjoy this episode. I hope you all are having a great week and have a great weekend. Mormons are my favorite. They're my favorite. Yeah, okay. They're absolutely my favorite. All Mormons are nutty Mormons. Mormons are the nicest cult of all time. Beautiful. And these Mormons are so nice. Everybody's so nice. (laughs) Everybody's so nice in Utah. Just being a Mormon's nutty. Mormons are really nice people. Totally nice. They are the yeah. best cult. My favorite religion is Mormons. They're the nicest people. Shout out to the Latter-day Saints. Joining us on today's episode is a good friend of mine, Lisa Roger, who not only is wildly intelligent, has a great presence on Laker Twitter, Jazz Twitter, um, has held a lot of uh, awesome jobs with awesome companies, might I add. Um, we're not here to necessarily talk about your resume, but there's no question you put in a lot of work in that regard. And it's been mainly in the financial sector, right? Kind of doing more along the HR lines. If, if that's sorry, no, not HR. Wow. <laughs> what is well, it? What I you... did a short stint of HR, but for yeah. the most part, it's been risk management, wealth management, and now commercial banking. So, Gotcha. Oh, you've done a lot of recruiting though. Is that yeah. right? Or was that just a small part too? Yeah, I have. It started within finance industry and then some others, but most of my career has been within finance. So in other words, you must have a good eye for talent when you see it. Am I, I, am I mistaken there? I try. Right? Okay. <laughs> so along those lines then, who's going to win the NBA finals? Well, look at my blanket. It's a Lakers blanket. I don't, it doesn't <laughs> matter what I think. I'm just all, I bleed purple and gold. Doesn't matter what the standings say. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so, in other words, it is gonna. You, you think it's gonna be the Lakers? Listen, I or just you want it to be the Lakers? I am all about putting out the right kind of energy out into the world, and so I'm saying Lakers because if I doubt them, then you know, bad things can happen. <laughs> ah, fair enough. But if the Jazz won, you'd be pretty happy about that. I feel like. I. I'm not going to say anything because I'm not going to mess up my vibes. 
I've got going into the playoffs here with my Lakers. Oh, wow. There's a lot going on here then. I know. I know. I'm still riding the high from last year, but most of it is selfish. That like, I just want to have more championships than the Celtics. Right now, we're tied. Ah, that's That's a worthy goal. That's That's a worthy goal. I just want us to have 18 and them to have 17, and then I don't care who wins after that point. Um, that does, however, include the controversial Minnesota championships that Celtics fans like to point out as not being L.A. Laker championships. But it's the same franchise, so I actually would agree with you guys that they do count personally. But And I will have Celtics fans know that, listen, next weekend I will be turning 33, and in my 33 years of being alive, the Celtics have only won one championship. Well, that, that says a lot, right? The relevancy goes a long way. There you go. I mean, that's, that's why I started this podcast as the – kind of the original idea of being a jaded BYU sports fan because we haven't beat Utah in what feels like forever. So I don't care how well we do. If we're not beating Utah, it's so frustrating to be a BYU sports fan, especially a BYU football fan. Um, Because that's obviously what I'm referring to when I say we haven't beat Utah. But one one other thing I forgot to mention uh, as part of your intro, by the way, is that you have become an unbelievable chef. Not that you... Like, not that this is new, so to speak, but you've really taken it to like this next level that I'm just like blown away by. And you often post kind of like what you've cooked and things like that. And I've even been able to, I've had the honor of participating in some of your dinners that you've created. And it's just, it's incredible, honestly, yeah. what what you've been able to make. Then I remember the last time we got together, you had made. Well, that's when I did the Southern food, right? I think, I thought yeah. it was Italian. Oh, that was right before. So that was in the. Oh, you're right. That was when it was just you and me. Yeah. yeah. Then, then you went southern when you had a couple more people over. Yeah. That's right. Oh, before we continue, I don't think we said my name. I think we should probably tell people who I am. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good point, Lisa Roger. Which yeah. I did mention your name um, in my last episode, the one that went out just recently, uh, oh, just okay. as like a preview. Just... I haven't listened to it yet. I've been in class. Oh, no worries. All day, but. It's not it's not relevant to what you and I are going to talk about. So, no worries there. Um, you have been amazing in terms of your I mean just in all facets, let's be honest, but um, you've listened to a few, quite a quite a few of, of the episodes I put out which is so generous in and of itself for you to do that and I for you to take the time and and really uh, you know prioritize that to some degree is I mean it's such an honor for someone like you to take that time and then also to give me feedback of your thoughts and things like that and I and I really appreciate it a lot and you you don't hold back and and I that's what I want you know and and you and it's always always if there's ever any disagreement or anything which happens with plenty of people it's never it's never vitriolic it's never uncivil it is it's exactly how I feel like people should converse. And I've even pointed it out before, even recently, you know, Arthur Brooks, one of my favorite quotes, and I think he said this in a BYU devotional, he said, we shouldn't disagree less, we should disagree better. Yeah. Because through our disagreements, you know, understanding grows and things like that. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. no, and you know, I've I've explained it with people that if, if I disagree, it's only worth discussing when it's my friends and, and I mean I'm that maybe that 
maybe your quote should apply to me then if I need to disagree better. <laughs> but oh, I, I think in that sense where I, I, as far as being willing to put in the time to have certain discussions and whether they're things I don't agree with, or maybe even things I just am interested in and want to understand better, or if I want to be understood better, um, it's a lot easier to have those conversations when it's on the base of basis of love and friendship, you know, where yeah. I feel like the people in my life that I care about that I know that no matter what my thoughts on something or their thoughts on something, because there exists this foundation other than the discussion we're going to have, then we, it, we have something solid so that we can have those disagreements or we can learn more and more about each other. Absolutely. And that's exactly, exactly how I've thought of it too, is that you and I have so much common ground in places that are important to us. You know, sports is one thing. One other huge aspect is Seinfeld, how big we're both Seinfeld fans um, or how, how we're such big Seinfeld fans. I mean, seriously. And, um, but one thing I wanted to, to take note of is that what you said was, you know, you say maybe you like you, you only like to disagree with friends, which I think is actually a pretty good rule because what you're really talking about is context. Yeah. Right. And, and, when you're disagreeing with a stranger or somebody you don't know well, it's hard for them to put into context what exactly you're saying. Right. And and I think that can become an issue. And I think really what all you're doing is just playing it safe. And I think that's smart. Well, I think a smart person. And to their defense, I, I can't give them the benefit of the doubt. Like I really Fair. I can't. Like I don't know anything about them and some of my life experiences have taught me not to do that (laughs) when really I know that people really are trying to do the best that they can but when we don't know people we're often on the defensive you know and so I just know that when I'm talking to people that I know those walls come down and it's mostly everything all the discussions come from love instead yeah no I couldn't agree more that's I'm exactly on the same page there um, speaking of which, you've mentioned kind of the experiences that you've had in your life. I actually, that's kind of where I want to start because you do have an interesting story. You have an awesome journey from how basically you've come to Utah. Like you, you were, you know, originally coming from Southern California. Were you born there? No, I was actually born in Charleston, South Carolina. I thought there was an East Coast connection because I don't know if this is something you. I mean, I find it interesting, but you you are somewhat related to Tim Scott, the senator of South Carolina. Yes, and I only won't speak on that just because I think usually when it comes to certain things or might involve family, especially given his position, I usually mm. don't. More so like Fair. his protection, family protection, so I won't really explain relationship there. Um, yeah, but, no, that's totally fair. Yes, very close. But yeah, gotcha. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's, that's funny. Cause I thought there was an East coast connection. I thought it was like y'all kind of tied in there together, but yeah, anyway, so then through there, uh, your family migrated to California, Southern yeah. California specifically. Yeah. So my, my stepdad is actually from California. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you know, when he married my mom, uh, you know, she had already me and my little sister and married my mom and whisked her away across the country <laughs> and we grew up there and so you know I say I'm from Southern California just because that's where I spent most of my childhood yeah and everything pre-coming to Utah so 
I mean, I, I, I was born in Las Vegas and lived there till I was 11, but I still tell everybody I'm from Utah because we moved to Utah as a family when I was 11. And I feel yeah. like all my formidable years, which is really, you know, middle school, high school, when you're really starting to develop kind of your own sense of self, that to me is like that, that has Utah written all over it. Right. I can't tell people Vegas and then they're saying like, oh, what high school did you go to? Like, well, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I totally get that. You are a Southern California girl, no question, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's hard too because even as long as I've lived here in Utah, people are like, "Oh, it's been thirteen and a half years." So like, you're from Utah. I'm like, "No, no, no." no. <laughs> Stop! I don't like Utah. I love Utah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But it's just California's home. <laughs> That's fair. I totally get that. So anyway, you at some point had come across the church and I can't remember exactly how I know you were in Southern California at the time. And I also know you're the only member of, of your family. That's a member of the church. Correct. Yeah. 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 So I, there's a lot of LDS members down in so my family lives in mission Viejo or Rancho Santa Margarita, um, in you know, South Orange County area. There are a lot of members down there, a lot. Um, and I got to tell you, when I was in high school, I was like the ultimate goody two-shoes. Like, you know, never had a detention. I didn't even have a curfew because I just kind of lived by like, just be home. Like, just don't be home late because I just didn't want to risk like getting in trouble. Like I... <laughs> The fear of God was put yeah. into me when it came to like my, and mind you, that doesn't, that makes my parents sound scary. They're totally not. It's just maybe like older child syndrome, you know, where you have to mm-hmm. be the example and you follow the rules. Yeah. <laughs> you sure. know? So no, I was a goody two shoes and, um, you know, I mean, I say that, but really it was just, you know, it got to a certain point, like halfway through high school. Yeah. It was my junior year. You know, it's usually around that age anyway, 16. People are trying to kind of figure out where they are and what direction they're going in, who they – I mean, you're still kids, but you're still trying to figure yourself out. And really, I I just feel like my group of friends went two different directions. It was the group of friends that wanted to kind of experiment and try new things, which I'm totally supportive of. You know, you really have to find and navigate who you are. Um, And then there was me. It was like, I'm too afraid to try or think of trying anything um and so all i had left were the mormons (laughs) (laughs) funny how that works right (laughs) so i was yeah so it was great and you know i was part of student government about half of our student government was mormon (laughs) um you know everyone was athletes i mean it was i feel like that's not uncommon by the way like student government just attracts mormon kids all over the country but like as i've learned over the years i'm like yeah, I guess that was fitting. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, no, so I did. I got to lo- know, you know, so many people. And, you know, of course, um, and, and even, so actually kind of how it started is a, a good friend of mine, he and I, we've known each other since middle school, since we were like 12. Um, and we went to winter formal together. And we went with like his group of friends and they're all LDS. And there was a group of like, gosh, 20 some of us, I think. And... It was only me and one other person who were not LDS. So, of course, I'm getting the full immersion into LDS dance culture. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I had a blast. Like, it was so much fun. Um, and that was kind of just like my first experience of kind of outside of school. And, you know, people are put in 
certain scenarios of where you kind of test your faith a little bit, you know? Um, but, and I was just, I was very impressed and it was also people made me feel comfortable in asking questions. Cause obviously when I'm not, you know, it's only me and one other person are the only non-Mormons you have questions to ask, you know? And so, yeah. you know, it made it easy, very comfortable. And then I started taking the missionary discussions. Um, yeah, I was 16, yeah, 16 going on 17 at that point. Um, I wanted to join the church, but I wasn't 18 yet, so I needed my parents' permission. Um, my parents did not grant me permission to do so, um, and as a, the rebellious teen I was, <laughs> I said, "I'm gonna wait." <laughs> and wait, uh, you said you're gonna what? Sorry, I'm gonna wait. I was gonna wait uh, till I turned 18. And I was going to show them, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, which was like so funny when I think about it, that like the most rebellious thing I did as a teenager was join the church. Right. I know. Isn't that ironic? Right. We're, now, let me ask real quick. Did, were your parents members of another church or faith or anything um, like that? So at my time? dad grew up Catholic. Mm -hmm. Um, and my mom, I mean, I think like at the time it was like, yeah, as she could go, um, you know, there was a church near us. Um, it was non-denominational Christian. Um, she's just certainly gotten much more involved. Um, you know, kind of after, it's like after I went off to college, she became way more involved. And she also, that was due to, she had more time, you know, work was less yeah. a time constraint for her. Um, but she, yeah, she's very much involved in her church, especially now. And it's, and for me, it's beautiful to see. She, you know, leads her Bible study groups, um, you know, kind of regionally. And there's so many young women. Uh, and I say young women, not in, in the terms of how we would describe young women, like, you know, teenagers, but more so of, you know, women in their 20s and 30s that, I, you know, I feel that many of them have kind of turned to my mom to be, you know, a good mentor and an example to them. And she, it's just, it, I, again, I find it very beautiful, you know, how involved she is in her church and it's something that she really loves. Um, so, yeah, I mean, she's certainly over the years become even closer to God. Um, and I, I enjoy it. I enjoy watching, you know, how happy she is. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. But anyways, you know, to wrap that up a little bit, I ended up, you know, deciding I was going to wait, whole year goes by, and I mean, mind you, I wasn't allowed to go to church, have access to scriptures, or... Really oh, they did tell you to stop going to church eventually. Oh, yeah, it was like, no, oh, wow. no. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, and, you know, I respect their decision, too, right? I mean, it's something that they didn't really fully understand, um, and it was... Let me ask you this. Um... I guess it's kind of hard for you to really gauge this, though, being a member of the church now. Um, what if your own son or daughter wanted to join another church before they were 18, but needed your permission to do so? What would right. what would your thoughts be then? Um, well, I think that's more so why I have more respect for them, for my parents mm -hmm. and their decision to not let me kind of take, you know, lessons for anymore. Um, it's just... I mean, that's hard to answer, right? Because I don't have any children at the moment. But I just think that, um, you know, it took me two years of investigating before I eventually did get baptized. I didn't get baptized until actually I was almost 19. So a year later than I thought I would, you know. Um, right. You know, but I do think that it's important to just not jump so quickly into things you know um which is what you felt like you probably were doing oh, before yeah, you were looking, 18 yeah looking back i think that if 
they would have allowed me to, I, it probably would have had a different experience, you know, as far as my spiritual journey. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I just feel like it's important to kind of, you don't really truly know yourself that much when you're that young. And, and, and I don't want to discredit the youth because even I, you know, I occasionally teach Sunday school for the youth and I'm so impressed by who they are, um, at their age. Um, but now, now knowing who I am being twice that age, <laughs> you know, it's, it's completely different. I see the experiences that I have and I do think that it is important to kind of take your time and figure out who you are because, I would have been just a completely different person if I was just jumping into everything I did. Um, so I do admire my parents. And again, I think a lot of that just comes from the fact that, Hey, I was the, I'm the oldest. So, <laughs> you know, they're going to be more strict with me than they would. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, but also it's just a matter of like, I was, you know, taking missionary discussions, not on a weekly basis or any of that. It was like, every three, four days, I wanted to learn more, which is great, right? You want to soak that up. Um, but that also meant that I really just wasn't taking the time to really, truly know for myself. Um, and it was very foreign to my parents, you know, it was like out of the blue, their daughters taking discussions for this church that they're not really familiar with. And this was so long ago. So it's not like Google had these great algorithms where if you Googled Mormon, that the LDS trivia right. sites yeah. come up at the top. It was just, that was at the bottom of the page. Everything at the top was all the anti-Mormon material. So my parents were scared. They're like, what are, what is she? Absolutely. Yeah. You know? So I fully understand and respect the decision that they made. Um, and when well, you, and you look at it as a decision made out of love, it, it right. sounds like. Exactly. Yeah. Like I just see yeah. them, they were just being normal parents. They're concerned. They don't know what's going on. And out of nowhere, their daughter's only been involved in this for a month. And now she wants to just devote her life to it. For sure. And, and like putting it into their perspective, let's not forget that it, I'm sure it was hard for them to withhold that from you. You know, I mean, they, yeah. you were their daughter and, and they, they'll obviously love you. And so they're thinking, you know, we don't want to just tell her no for the sake of telling her no, but we want to tell her no because we feel like we have a reason that maybe she's not looking at this the way that she might look at this in even two years from now. Exactly. And so we want to be careful. And so that does make a lot of sense that it really was for your own protection and it wasn't just like, yeah, yeah, do whatever you want. I mean, maybe, who knows, maybe them telling you no until you were at a, an appropriate age to do so on your own prevented your brother from joining like Scientology or something like that. Right. I mean, who knows? Right. I mean, yeah. mind you, I think, gosh, when I was that age, he was barely like three or four years old. So yeah. I, think he, I was much of an example. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but I mean, but yes, I definitely see your point. I mean, I just think that, you know, it, and plus, like I said, I was the oldest. Everything for them, you know, was just kind of trial and error. They hadn't really dealt with that. There was no one else that came before me. I was the oldest, um, mm. you know, but they just, it, everything was out of love and, you know, it, there wasn't much they could do when I was an adult, right? And, and I say adult by legal standards, you know, when I was 18. And I, had, I decided when I went to college, it was, I was going to community college and I was on the cheer squad. So naturally, you know, we hung out with all the athletes. And so I kind of just ditched the idea of religion for a little bit, you know. Um, 
and it was fine. And, but I also just missed, you know, that structure. And I also felt like I had kind of gone back to my old church or even explored, you know, Catholicism or other religions. And it just wasn't pulling me in that direction. Wasn't scratching the same itch that I had previously scratched. Yeah. And I don't, and mind you, I think who I am now, and you and I have had several discussions. So maybe this is a good disclaimer for those that do listen, you know, it's like my views on faith have changed a lot. I mean, I still do believe in a lot of the doctrines of the church um, and consider myself a member, but in some ways I'm not, you know, fully active, you know, but I feel like my relationship with God is fully active, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. two different things, Um, but I still, how I access God, yes, has a lot to do with, you know, the foundations of the gospel of, you know, in regards to the LDS church, um, you know, but it's less so structured and more so, you know, my personal relationship with my heavenly father and Jesus Christ. Um, yeah. but that, so that disclaimer aside, you know, I, I just, what felt right for me and as far as doctrinally, what, you know, made me comfortable or that I could, you know, commit my life to, it was the LDS church. Um, you know, and eventually I got baptized. I got baptized a little bit before I turned 19. Um, then my, my mother was not very happy with that, but again, not what she could do. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And I was still living at home, so it, it made things awkward, you know. But um, then about a year later, I decided to come up to Provo and try try my hand at BYU. <laughs> so let's say that kind of – actually – Let's not get into too much of the BYU experience yeah. because that's all like, I mean, I know there's stuff you could talk about there, but I'd rather have kind of your views on immersing yourself kind of in Utah culture, in Mormon culture and how that's been for you. Because you have a, you have had a fairly tenuous relationship with the state of Utah in, in regards to culture and the church, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And that's a lot of what I want to talk to you about. So that's why kind of, we can gloss over you went to, you ended up going to BYU. You, um, you studied, you did business there, right? No. Oh so, no. Yeah. I know my career is so funny of how I've gotten where I am. <laughs> um, <laughs> no worries. Yeah. No, Sorry. I'm, I'm a bad friend for, for getting your major. No, it's not like, well, what you see, like what you assume is not what would happen, right? Yeah. What I show you is otherwise. Um, no, I studied history. Um, and it was about halfway through my major. I realized. I think history is awesome, by the way. Yeah. yeah well, cool. I, yeah. I actually was going to declare as like history teaching, but then I learned that teachers don't make any money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll never pay my bills. Um, yeah. And then I realized I didn't want to be a lawyer and I didn't want to be a historian. So now what? <laughs> Yeah, right. Um, So I added a business minor and it was mostly like maybe if I take a couple accounting or other classes, someone will just hire me for the sake of maybe I like I learned how to read financials. Um, (laughs) But and that got, you know, and that's what led me on my path to finance. But um, yeah, so going back to what you said, though, you know, about like my relationship with Utah and things with the church, just so that people that are listening can know because they can't see me. um, I'm black. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I did mention that um, okay. in, in the previous episode, I said a black woman of the member of the church. And that, that's only um, even relevant because these are important, like to have your perspective, right? right? Specifically mm-hmm. on race and things like that. And obviously we're going to get into more of this. 
And I and I actually think that brings up a net, another interesting topic, and maybe this will be later in the podcast. But I it's it's interesting to me to see how people identify, like what what components of who they are mm-hmm. is the top part of their identity, mm-hmm. right? Sure. You know, and and we can get into that later, but I'd like to maybe touch on that at some point. But let's get back to because you've written on this, you've uh-huh. written some articles yeah. that have mentioned your own relationship with the church, with Utah, things like that. And I remember specifically two stories that you've shared before mm-hmm. that you were like, this is like, this is kind of hard to deal with because your, your race is being brought to the surface by people outside of kind of your comfort circles. And one was a bishop, I remember, and another was a guy that took you out on a date. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to get into that? Yeah, actually, I told this story to a friend actually last weekend, and it's really funny to me because those two, the reason that those two experiences stand out to me the, the most is because the first one with the bishop is what instilled many insecurities in me for a while. How old were you, by the way? Um, when that I think I was bishop. I was 20. Oh, wow. Yeah. Was okay. Really um, Very impressionable within the, and especially within your kind of how you feel about the church and how you fit oh, yeah. in and I everything like that. I only went the church for like a year. Or yeah. Barely, like, yeah, barely a year. Okay. It was right around there, yeah. It was about, no, I didn't remember the church two years because this was shortly before I turned 21. So it was like. Well, regardless, I mean, you are you are still in your freshman stages of the, in the grand scheme oh, of yeah. being involved in the church, no right? There's no question. knows themselves yeah as i said extremely impressionable at that age right and especially being new to the church right and a very and then the sim, the situation with the date you know it was just it was a few years ago but it's what snapped me out of those insecurities so it was there were kind of like bookends you know to kind of this journey to mm-hmm. you know being unapologetically who i am you know good but, um, yeah yeah, we. I guess we can. I can share the experiences so people aren't like, "Well, what happened?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I figured since you've wrote, written about them before, they're out there in the public domain anyway. Yeah, so, I, I can yeah, and and I think they provide really good context to how you see things too. Yeah, I mean, I'll just yeah, Reader's Digest version. I mean, you know, my bishop had, um, you know, as he does with everyone, regular, you know, just checking in, how's it going, meeting. Um, and he asked me, he was like, oh, like, how, how's dating going? And I was like, I don't know, like, it's fine. Like, I, and mind you, here's the thing. I did not grow up LDS. All of my friends who were LDS that were women were, you know, like, I want to go to BU. I want to get married. I mean, half of them were engaged freshman, sophomore year, you know. Yeah. But, like, for me, I didn't grow up like that. And it scared the, can I say hello on the phone? in fact if i'm not mistaken the sh bomb has been dropped on my podcast without me editing it i don't know it's in there somewhere it wasn't me but yeah I, well it did scare the hell out of me Mary, yeah. like that young i'm like absolutely not so i had a rule my rule was like you only get to take me out on two dates and that's it because i'm like I'm not leaving this place married, which no mm-hmm. problem for anybody else. It was just my own comfort level. And no, for sure. I will say yeah. that I succeeded. I- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you graduated with honors in that regard. I I'm not sure mistaken. Yeah. Not Same here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I, uh, so I was, that was not my focus. My focus was, I just want to hang out with my Mormon friends because I'm new to this whole thing and I need to finish school. 
that was just my whole that was my goal and the bishop was like well how's dating I'm like oh, it's fine but that's not my priority he's like well you know I just want to double check you know how you're feeling about it and I'm like is this this whole pressure to like get married thing because like not my thing right now <laughs> you know he was just like well you know I just because you know there's just not really many of like your people here and I was so confused because I'd barely been a member of the church for two years. So in my mind, I came, I transferred to BYU because I was coming to be with, quote unquote, my people, right? right. Where it was like, here, I'm this new member of a church and I want to be surrounded by other members so I can feel uplifted and continue to grow in the gospel. And so I'm confused because I'm like, are you kidding? There's over 30 thousand students here who are like all Mormon. What do you mean my people aren't here? They're all here. <laughs> and yeah. he was like, well, no, no, like, you know, like your people. I'm like, again, not clicking. And he, then he became more explicit. He was like, well, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, you know, like most, there's just not really many African Americans here. And most white men aren't attracted to African American women. And what that is quite the blanket statement for one. Yeah. And, and I mean, does night, does naivety even do that justice? I don't, I don't know. Like, I'm not even sure, but that regardless, that's extremely, extremely obtuse on his part. Yeah. Do you even feel like it was his place to say anything like that? Well, and it's hard because I've had people, as I told that story to at different times in my life, they're like, I hope you, you know, just laid into him I'm like well that's not really who I am <laughs> but right. still it's like if so if a, if a bishop said that to me now I definitely would have stuck up for myself and I would have called out and said that was not false and it was inappropriate um right. but I was 20 and I was so young and thought that like my ecclesiastical leaders knew everything you know um and I didn't object to it. I just kind of was a little quiet um, and just kind of said dating was fine and changed the subject, you know? Um, and it's not, I don't excuse it at all. Um, sometimes it's a little horrifying to know, to think about the fact that I really feel like he was being genuine, that he was concerned about me and the fact that he was like, Oh no, Lisa's not getting dates, you know, <laughs> which right, is yeah. like, but again, I don't give him a password cause it was incredibly inappropriate um, right. and wrong. <laughs> um, but it, it messed me up for a long time, especially um, when I started to come a little bit lax on my two date rule. <laughs> um, mm. And, you know, I would go out with guys that I would be interested in. And, you know, then there's always the conversation at times like, no, I like you. I mean, you're really great, but I'm kind of also seeing someone else. And I really kind of want to see where that goes, um, which is, that's a normal thing that happens. And right. um, oftentimes, I mean, that's, that's not on them. It's just given the demographics, often who they wanted to try things out with, that girl was white. <laughs> You know, and that's just, like I said, the demographics. Um, mm -hmm. But it made me very insecure. It made me feel that my blackness was not attractive and that that was the reason why, you know, men didn't want to date me. Um, it was very uncomfortable when I was going through the temple 
um, in preparation for the temple, you know, at the time, I went through the temple, it was 10 years ago. Um, and at the time, you know, on the BYU speeches website, there was 30, exactly 30 speeches on temples. And so I planned it out leading up to the day I would receive my endowments. I would listen to, listen or read one speech a day for a month. And they're still on the BYU website, by the way, but there's a slew of talks given by apostles, prophets, other general authorities, um, during the fifties, the sixties, the seventies. Um, and they're talking mostly in regards to if it referenced like temple marriage, um, but condemning interracial marriages, um, condemning, um, really my existence, you know, like my mom is half white, half black. I mean, my whole family, my stepdad is half black, half Filipino. I just look at the diversity in my own family and how beautiful they are as people and how, because of how diverse we all are, there exists this greater love because now we have multiple viewpoints and experiences to consider. Um, that was being condemned. And that was very hard for me <laughs> to listen I to. Can only, I can only imagine. I mean, it goes... it. I mean, going back to kind of that experience you had with your bishop, like you had mentioned, like you hear this from your ecclesiastical leader and no less when you were even just a year or two into the church period. And I think there is a bigger issue in regard, well, maybe not bigger issue. I don't mean to say that. I don't mean to put a hierarchy on it, but there's also another big issue with how sometimes we view our leaders. Yeah. Right. And that instead of just really being able to identify them as who they are, which is imperfect men. Right running a running an imperfect church right mm -hmm. trying to surrounding a perfect gospel but with that you're going to get a lot of arbitrary things going around it just happens but anyway you take that and you blow it up because now you're seeing general authorities talk about your race now, and i'm kind of curious about that so of the 30 speeches that you found do you remember like how many specifically mentioned or condemned interracial marriage and things of uh, no, that nature? I don't remember because I also am not a masochist. So I was not about to sit there and listen to all of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, you don't, do you remember any names that brought it up or anything? I'd have to go back and look. Um, I should have looked. I'm just curious out of my own curiosity because that, I mean, cause here's the thing. There's zero question, at least to me, right. In my perception, which take that for what it's worth, that, that's no longer taboo from a cultural perspective. You're going to find pockets of it right. anywhere. You find pockets of it outside of the church places too, right? Yeah. Um, but you'll still find it in the church as well. This church is no exception. But as an, a broad overview, it's widely accepted, I would say. If that's, if, I think that seems fair. But well, like I said, it's just my perspective. You have to, to consider. And this is where those talks instilled a lot of fear in me. Um, was the fact that, you know, I'm in Utah, there's a lot of people born, raised in Utah, their families have been as well. Um, they're, you know, they are multiple generations have gone to BYU, you know, whatnot. So when it came to, let's say, dating, or even certain friendships, what scared me was the fact that there, I worried about the likelihood that they're parents or their grandparents were in attendance during those devotionals or, you know, and, you know, I know that like there, 
times change or there are statements made by the church that say, you know, we no longer accept this or, you know, whatever, but that doesn't undo uh, people's upbringings, you know, or even then there's also kind of scales where it becomes like, oh, okay, well, you might be able to feel comfortable being around someone that's a different race now, or you might be able to be comfortable with your kids being friends with them now, but it's a whole different ball game when it comes to one of them dating someone who is, you know? So, and I also, I want to be careful because I don't want anyone to think that I operate under this, like, everybody who's white must think this way because that's not oh of course not of course not and i think your concerns are extremely valid and in fact it's a point that i wouldn't even have thought of is that really what you're saying and and this makes perfect sense is that those talks spoken over a pulpit to an audience of thousands of people at the very least but are also available to everyone and all you know i don't know what we're at now 16 17 million members of the church those are still available, right? Yeah. Um, now, granted, there's a lens of the time for that you have to look sure. through to some degree. Yeah. That doesn't make it excusable, but the fact that they're still available, you're kind of like, I mean, that's interesting. Now, I don't think they should be erased. I mean, I say this because, like I said, I study sure. history. I'm very yeah. much. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. You know, preserving history, but there's a difference between preserving and honoring. You know, and sure. I don't think yeah. the church is honoring it um, by any means, but. It, it just, it does. It, it, it's something that, you, and you wouldn't think of that, you know, because that's not an experience that you've had to have, you know. Um, and it, it, and you probably look most to your own family and you don't see that, you know, happening or you don't see your parents interacting that way. So, you you know, it, because your parents and your family seem like great people, you know. So it's not something that you're going to think like, oh, no, you know. So anyways. I mean that I'm I'm kind of I'm almost the wrong guy to even ask in that regard too because I mean I come I'm a grandson of immigrants. Right. Um my my grandpa grew up in abject both my grandparents grandpa and grandma that found each other at BYU actually grew up in abject poverty. Like it's like the extreme of the extreme. Uh one my grandpa from Mexico and then my grandma from France who you could argue even in some senses grew up in even more poverty or deeper poverty or however you want to say that if that's even possible. Right. Um so yeah, race was never like growing up, you know, we, we celebrated our, our heritage and our cultures. And I, it was funny. We'd always just talk about how, like how proud we were of being Mexican, you know? And yeah. it's like, I don't look any, I don't look Mexican at all. Like right. I got blue eyes. I look as, as white as anybody basically. But um, anyway, so, so that's just my little caveat to say my perspective is probably, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if what it represents, sure. but I don't want to say that it necessarily represents somebody's white grandparent that might have been in the audience hearing this speech, right. taking it all in as doctrine, heaven forbid, well, right? But that's well, not impossible. Like, right. And I think what made it really hard for me is that all of those speeches, all of those devotionals are closed in the name of Jesus Christ. That's a great point. And that makes it more painful, you know? And I had a professor at BYU who just was amazing. It was a, in the history program, there's a church history class, not the religion class. In fact, very far from. Um, At the very beginning of the semester, he says, you know, if you are someone where discussing, you know, the dark histories of the church, the, the, you know, the things that have happened that we can't really deny. Um, if you feel like that's something that 
could likely shake your faith, you need to drop this class. But if you feel that that's something you want to navigate, for many of you, you actually may find that it might strengthen your faith. Um, and I, listen, I was up for the challenge. <laughs> um, and it was very hard on me. I had many nights on my knees crying, even reading things about polygamy, um, because it was reading about things that, you know, I mean, we study actual documents. We study, you know, things that, you know, that are in the archives, you know, all of those things mm -hmm. that people like to pretend aren't there or maybe is, oh, no, only anti-Mormons talk about this. But it's like, no, you can talk about these things. Like, it's okay to actually acknowledge them and admit that there are times where maybe things are inappropriate. You know? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and yeah. I think that's healthy. <laughs> um, well, and it goes, and it speaks to the imperfection. I mean, in some sense, I don't want to use the word refreshing because that makes it almost sound like it's like a good thing. And it's, you know, it's a bad thing can, can unfold and over time become a good thing. It's like a catalyst to an overall better view of things. So that's really what I mean is that it's not necessarily refreshing, but it is nice to see sometimes that even the higher leaders of the church have plenty of room for correction. Yeah, I mean, there was even a quote, and I have to find the exact quote and who said it, but it stood out to me, um, so I'm, I am paraphrasing, but it was, it was from a general authority, and it was along the lines of, like, I would hope that people would not model their lives solely on me because I've made many mistakes in my life, you know, but understanding that I've made the mistakes and I'm working towards being redeemable. Do you know what I mean? And we all are. Absolutely. Every single yeah, person we all are. makes so many mistakes. And that's kind of the whole point of the atonement, right? Like we're working towards being, we are redeemable, but so much of our effort and our love for God is working towards what we've already earned. And and one thing I'd, I'd want to give you credit to as well, for as well, is that the idea that you're, you're not, it doesn't seem like you're, you know, focusing on presentism here, which is something I'd imagine you're pretty well aware of being a history major, is that you can look at the lens of its time and you could say that was a bad time for not just the church, but the country and just a lot of different, even other churches as well. And, and just because the church essentially, I don't want to, I don't know, I don't want to exonerate them by saying it this way, but it's like they fell victim to the wave of the culture of the country yeah. and other things, things like that. They've helped perpetuate it, which is terrible. But and you're not castigating the church as a whole for that. And I think, I think it's important because it's basically saying who's to say we would have done anything different had we lived in that time. And right. that's the way I like to look at it is that I'm not going to sit here and say, I definitely would have done it better because we don't know. And it takes a lot of hubris to think that truly, if that's, if that's truly the case. Yeah. And I look at things through two lenses. For one, I do get defensive of the church. Like when I've had several people, so especially my friends who are other of other minorities that have asked me, how in the world could you join a church that didn't let black people in at this point? You know, all these things. And my response always is that and every other church, you act like this was any different. <laughs> it was, right. we were yeah. so segregated that black people had to have their own churches because no one else was going to let them in, <laughs> you know? That's right. and so I, I mean, that doesn't make it right. <laughs> by right, right, right. But it also doesn't make them any different. <laughs> right. Um, so there's that. Um, and then it's also just the fact that, like, I think we have to, I think because of how much we revere ecclesiastical leaders, 
we forget that like two things can be true. You can have a church calling and love God and likely be a racist. Like both can be true. And I know people might be like, oh, what? But like, no, I, actually, I totally agree like, with that. What do, you, what do you want from white men during the 1800s and in the 1900s during the Jim Crow era? Like, if they were a, if they were not racist, they would be ahead of their time, and there would be no discussions at all whatsoever concerning race. Mm-hmm. You know, and that people might, yeah, and that's because the thing that people have to understand is like racism or the the word racism or racist is such a triggering word, but it really shouldn't be. It should be more of a reflective word. Where like if there is, because for me, because especially when people are like, why do we have to make everything about race? It's like, well, you have the option to opt out of race. I don't. <laughs> My life is all. Explain that to me. <laughs> Sorry, explain that to me. What do you mean by that exactly? I'm not saying I'm not saying I disagree. I'm curious what you mean. Yeah, sure. So I've had people that you know they'll get upset if any time you know let's say like, let's use jazz the jazz stuff you know so when. Mm-hmm. Brian, you know, Smith, Paul Tricks, he wanted to do, you know, for every win, they provide a scholarship, you know, to minority youth. And people are like, why does everything have to be about race? Nah, nah, nah. But it's like, well, because the way that things are, the systems of how things run in our country, how they impact other races, those systems benefit only, like, one race. And, and that's, it's okay to admit that because it's it, it's only been it's been less than 100 years since i mean it's what the civil rights that was at the, the end of the 60s yeah the jim crow era ended yeah in the and 60s right you, not a whole lot has changed since then you know what i mean it was like okay black people can buy homes now they can use the same bathrooms now they might hold leadership positions now but not a whole lot has changed you know, if when you and I'm just saying this, and people may get upset that I'm saying that, but I, I'm speaking like talking from historical things. If you actually look at how things are and how they've been over history, not much has changed. Okay, and so we, it's okay, it's okay to say that. That doesn't mean that by me saying a lot hasn't changed, that everyone must be racist, because that's not the case. You know, that's not how things go. But I'm saying is, is that there are things that are still in place that impact people of different races differently than they do if you're white. And it's just, it's totally fine to say, yeah, that makes sense. Or yeah, I've benefited from that. Or, you know, there's lots of different things, but it's okay to actually say, yeah, I see that. And by saying, I see that, that doesn't mean anyone's calling you a racist. So when people are saying, get upset, like, why does everything have to be about race? It's like, well, a lot of the things that I've had to work hard for in my life have been because of my race, you know, or if it's, or as I navigate through life, people can, like my old bishop, he came from a very loving place and made it about race. And then through all of my 20s made me incredibly insecure and for me, dating became all about my race, you know? And so yeah. for him, he doesn't have to worry about race, but I do. And I think it's okay for us to be able to admit that and say that, like, 
for some people, it isn't all about race. But for some of us, we have no choice. I don't get to take off my skin at the end of the night. My No one's going to look at me and think I'm not black, you know, and that's not going to take away any unconscious biases. And again, I'm not calling people a racist for having an unconscious bias. I've had some unconscious biases myself that have been very painful to have to work through. And I've loved who I've become on the other side of it. How, how did you recognize those unconscious biases that you're talking about? You don't need to go into detail of sure. what they are. I'm not like trying to put oh, you on the no, spot. I will share but I mean, because I... Or even if you want to, sure. Well, because here's I, the thing. I know that people... Because I think it's really hard to recognize an unconscious bias, right? Oh, that's what yeah. makes it unconscious. Totally. And I know that one that's controversial, and it has been for a while, is, you know, is being an ally towards, you know, our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, you know? Um and I won't get too much into how people feel about it or not, but I, I will openly admit I was one of the people that was, you know, in the call centers calling for Prop 8 because the church told me to. And, you know, I was saying things that were actually pretty horrible, you know, and a lot of it was under the guise of like, yeah, that's what the church is telling me. Um, but it's different when you have people in your life who who come out and you realize that you said all of those things in front of them and that you were pushing for them not to be able to feel and experience love the way that just comes so easily and naturally to me and nobody objects to. And people are telling them horrible things about who they are. And I think it was very painful for me to come to like a realization that it, it was just, it's hard. It's hard because you look at things from yourself of like, well, what are you taught spiritually or whatever? But honestly, all it took was listening to somebody else's experience for me to realize that like, at the end of the day, I actually just really want my friend to be happy. And I don't think it's my place to object to that. And I understand that there are things that like, the church can say whatever it wants to. Members can feel however they want to. But just me, and I'm not even, I'm not even going to preach on it. I just feel that for me, I have people in my life that it is the most beautiful thing for me. Sorry, I feel like I'm getting emotional now. But it is the most beautiful thing for me to see them be unapologetically themselves and love whoever they want to. And no one tell them no. Because I don't have the right to tell that person, you don't get to love someone. That's not, that, and also that has nothing to do with me. And I think that's how I, I feel about all kinds of different things in my life that I've had to kind of work through. And I have, I've had a lot of conversations where I've just apologized, where I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to step aside because it's not my place. And I actually enjoy more seeing you happy. You know, and so I think that, and I realize I might be ruffling some feathers by saying that. Um, but then, you know, when it does come to bringing it back to race, um, it's okay to have reckoning moments. It's okay to actually recognize that, like, oh, I've always been taught this, or I've always, you know, believed that. And then hearing someone's experience and being like, damn, 
well, I had no idea that those thoughts impact other people, you know? I did want to ask you really quickly, and this is backtracking a little bit, but you had said that really not much has changed since kind of the change of the Jim Crow South into kind of the civil rights era and everything like that. Mm -hmm. So um, in other words, it kind of seems like if Martin Luther King Jr. were able to see today, Mm -hmm. his, his, uh, his response and reaction you're thinking might be something along the lines of guys, like this isn't what I had in mind, like, like, this is, we haven't, we haven't done anything. Well, because here's the problem. And I, it's very frustrating to me. I did write about this in that same piece, one that you referenced. I actually said this of like, you really, you don't get to quote Martin Luther King, or at least be selective of like the quotes that he says, and then push for things that go against the very nature of what he was saying, you know? And so what happens historically, and I'm saying all this, again, I'm looking things at a historical perspective. If you look at things, I know we have several friends, you yourself, that come, and even I used to be very conservative in my political beliefs, um, who praise Reagan, you know, um, but the Reagan administration caused a lot of harm for the black community, pushed a lot in regards to welfare queens is what they named them whereas in and really created this prison system right where you have communities specifically communities of color that are impacted by things like drugs um you know it was kind of the crack era you have things where you know cocaine was rampant across all especially like affluent communities but then you have the lower version of it crack going into you know communities that are struggling and the minority communities were the only communities being policed. Or you have, you know, in calling people from these communities, calling them welfare queens, which is very interesting to me because if you look across the country, no matter what your race is, there's a lot of people who are white doing the same thing, <laughs> you know, or who are also sure, yeah. off of food stamps or, you know, whatever. But It's an easy way to say, if we focus our efforts here, or when it's saying, like, we need to clean up this community. Well, oftentimes when we look at those communities, they're primarily communities of color. You know, there's even right next to me near Rose, you know, I'm kind of downtown, but just west is Rose Park area. And there's a lot of issues going on there right now where you have people that are in their homes and it's what they can afford. And you have developers going in to clean up the city and they're taking these lots or, you know, kind of buying these homes that people are renting from and replacing them with these large luxury communities. And it's in an effort to clean up the community. But what it does is it actually pushes away the community and replaces the community, you know? And so, and mind you, 
I might sound like a hypocrite. I live downtown in a luxury apartment. I'm not saying luxury apartments are bad, <laughs> yeah. right? No, you, you, your apartment complex is sweet. Yeah, yeah. it's very nice. I've personally witnessed that, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not saying luxury apartments are bad, but what I'm saying is, is it's, it's all the terminology. You see, when we say things like we're going to clean up the community, what we're there's saying is, is that- an inher- There's an implication that it was dirty. It, exactly. Yeah. But- the community, and oftentimes too, that what also happened as a result of a lot of those things were redlining, right? You had, you know, in the, a lot of the cities, even prior to the civil rights movement, you had the white flight where everyone was living in the cities and you had these zonings. And then you also had where, you know, as people were migrating from the South to the North, you had this, the white flight where white people from the cities went out into the suburbs. And so then you have the cities that are saturated, the, the bigger cities saturated with people of color and the white flight is what it was called, where they all left and went to the suburbs. And so then now these communities are being called dirty or they're being, you know, and, and mm-hmm. then you talk, or when you say like, oh, you know, or people say like, oh yeah, they go to a nice school. Well, oftentimes do those nice schools have great minority representation? No. I mean, there's some, you know, but often, so it, a lot of it has to do with, or if, you know, maybe they don't live in nicer areas, even here in Utah. Like, and I say that because that's the terminology that's often used of like, oh, well, we live here, but we send our school, our kids to that school because it's a nice school. It's like, well, well, why? why? Why don't you feel comfortable here? Or, you know, and so I think it's, a lot of it is terminology and that's what makes it really hard to recognize of like, well, what do you mean things haven't changed? It's like So is it is it for like I guess that means then when they say something like, Oh, this is a nicer school than that school, I mean, are they directly talking about race or no. indirectly talking about race? Well, or hard. neither? Well that's what I'm saying, is it's hard to recognize those things when you kinda of hard to nail it down, right? Well, yeah. And, all you have to yeah. do is take the exact same situation and give it a new name. Hmm. That's all you have to I, do. And what do you think that what do you think that will do from there? What do you mean? What what will do? Like if you if you apply a new name to it, what do you think that then? It doesn't change anything. What I'm saying is that if if all you do is okay, so what? Let's go back to what your original question of what hasn't changed since Martin Luther King. If at the time it was very explicit segregation of you can't sit at this counter, you can't use this bathroom, you can't drink from this water fountain, right? Then move it. Then it becomes okay. Well, I get what you're we saying have now. To share everything, let's just leave them and go somewhere else. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. So now we segregate ourselves anyway. It's willful segregation yes. as opposed to forced segregation. Yes. It sounds and like. And then instead of white colored it becomes inner city suburbs so all you have to do is change the name so this is probably going to sound like an extremely naive question seriously because i don't i don't know a ton about i mean i've heard of white flight and all that stuff i don't know a ton of the dynamics there but why wouldn't black families move to the suburbs Ah, on their own because they couldn't because so they just financially, they were unable to. Well, there's a lot of things. So first of all, um, because of Jim Crow laws, job the, the jobs that they could be hired for 
when people are moving away from the cities and into the suburbs. But that happened post Jim Crow, didn't it? Yes. Like that was more civil rights. Yeah. And so assuming the Jim Crow laws didn't apply and they had to work in the inner cities or anywhere, like they could have then expanded. Well, but the thing is, is that because what I'm saying is it's a direct effect of Jim Crow is that no one's hiring you. No one, you don't have resources. You don't have any wealth at all, you know, to be able to have things like cars or, you know, reliable transportation, whatever. So the jobs that you do have, a lot of your employers, when they leave, you don't have anywhere or an ability to Mm. get to your previous employer. And so then you have to have a new job and maybe what's left doesn't pay like it used to pay. And so you don't have a way to get out. You already were given nothing. So let's say, you know, Martin Luther King, perfect example. He uses this quote where he says, it's a cruel thing, you know, to say like, yes, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Yes, that makes sense. We work hard, you know, you, you do, but it's a cruel thing to say that to a man with no boots, you know? And so when people say things like, well, if they don't want to live like that, then they need to get themselves out of that situation. Like, well, how? If I started with nothing and I don't have the ability to get anything, how do I get out? You know, and then it's like, or even when everyone likes to use the example of like, well, you, you know, don't just give a man a fish. You teach him how to fish. It's like, well, that's really hard to do when he doesn't have access to a fishing pole. You know, so it's those kinds of things that when I say a lot hasn't changed, there's that, but it also has to be with like how we teach things. So that's why words matter. And when you can change what you're saying and you change the words and their meanings, then from a lot of people's lens, it's, oh, Martin Luther King, it's civil rights and the Civil Rights Act, problem solved. When And, and it's like, no, not problem solved. And it really was the thing is that it's, it definitely wasn't problem solved because Martin Luther King was murdered. He was murdered because for what we quote now is being, and everyone's like, well, see, everyone needs to be peaceful like Martin Luther King. It's like, well, you know what? During that time, Martin Luther King, what he said was radical. Right. That was considered radical and he was killed for it. And when everyone says things about marches, no, see, they need to be peaceful. It's like, well, you know what was happening? They were doing these peaceful marches and it was the opposite effect of like what you don't see are the dogs that were set on the, the marchers, the people that were lynched, all of these things. And, and even Martin Luther King is criticized for this. Like he would purposely have photographers come and they would and say like, don't, don't rescue us when they come after us. And there's a- Yeah, I actually know that story. It's fascinating. Yeah, Yeah. why why do we want to save you? It's like, no, 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 because we want them to see it. We want everyone to see what happens when we try to do it peacefully. When we're trying to do it, it still doesn't work. We want to show them it doesn't work. (laughs) One of my favorite stories along those lines, it's, I mean, just from from an imagery and you can almost say like from a public relations perspective too, it's fascinating and there was a photographer there taking pictures and I can't remember what the context was like, whether or not it was the fire hose being sprayed on, on black people, or if it was 
the young schoolboy who had been attacked by a police dog, mm-hmm. which granted there probably wasn't that one because there is a great picture of that. Yeah. Um, so it was probably a different scenario where the photographer put down his camera so that he could help yeah. some of the black people uh-huh. that were, that were being um, either sprayed or, or right. whatever violent act was going on in them. Um, and Martin Luther King yelled at the guy yeah. and he said, he's like, pick up your camera. He's like, you are not here to help us. You are here to document everything that is happening to exactly. us right now. And I thought that's fascinating. And I was like, that's, you look at that and you're like, that sounds harsh, but yeah, I get it. Like well, you, you got to document, you got to have the image and the powerful images that come with that. And I find, I know sometimes you can be criticized for that, but for me, that's what's inspiring for me. I find that to be inspiring because I feel like, especially now when tensions are high, what does everyone have? Their phone. Right. It's like, you don't get to get away with this this time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so for me, I'm like, I like the idea. And most of the time people like to say that to me. Well, oh, well, Lisa, that's not what they meant. You can't have thought that's what they meant. I'm like, I hear it all the time. You don't get to tell me. Like, and even even so, it doesn't matter if what that's what someone meant. We all know that when we have like friendships or relationships. Like, how many of us have been in relationships and we've gotten in an argument and you, your partner says to you like they're upset and it hurt their feelings. And you're like, oh, wow, I'm so sorry. That's not how I meant it. And then it's humbling to realize I just hurt the person that I care about and I totally didn't mean it that way. But I need to think about how that makes them feel. And that's why sometimes context doesn't matter. <laughs> it does matter in the sense of working towards forgiveness, but it doesn't matter when it, when it comes to invalidating the pain that it causes. Because you can, like, both can be true. It can be, I didn't mean it this way, but it still hurt. And because it hurt, and now I recognize that what I didn't mean caused pain, I can reflect and be like, oh, wow. Okay, well... I need to work on how I communicate that, or maybe I need to reflect and not say that or learn better. Is it fair to say that context does matter in ter- in terms of the intent? You I, know, that's what I mean. Like in, in regards yeah. to forgiveness, like if someone was to say something to me and it was really messed up, then if I'm expressing my pain and someone says to me like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, that's not what I meant. I'm going to likely forgive them because it's going to be like, I know, I know right. that's not what you meant, but it really did hurt me. But if someone's like, well, you shouldn't get that offended because that's not what I meant. Sorry that you're offended. Then it's yeah. like, no, it, it matters. This like that. It's still pain. Now you're invalidating my pain and you also don't care that it caused me pain. And applying weakness to it too, yeah. which is like you choose to get offended. Um, and, 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 and I'm glad you pointed that out because I, I do think the the idea of intent is important to consider yes, because mm-hmm. there's naivety, yeah, and then there's like direct like racism, I guess. Which some people would say those kind of fall in the same camp, and I don't know. I guess this is a thing of semantics, and yeah, I, I tend to not associate the two, yeah, um, because I think racism can be it's generally by people that are trying to propagate right. an agenda, and sure. so yeah, that's where that makes sense to me. Uh, Lisa, here's the problem. I know we're running out of time. I I'm I'm upset at how great this conversation has been because I know there's so much more that we wanted to get to, specifically blacks in the priesthood. And you actually know, sent me yeah. an article from the church. So, if you're willing, can we do a part two at some point? I would love that. Yeah, 
I just think it would be great. There's so much to discuss, and I know that like, we've taken so many twists and turns. Um, but yeah. I do think that we've set a good stage, you know, because I, I, exactly, I think that's exactly right. This is a, an important foundation to to apply, so it's a great part one. Yeah. Part two, we can do maybe like in a month or something yeah. and talk more directly Blacks and the Priesthood and kind of like how you view the black integration into the church and things along those lines. Yeah, because I do think there's a lot of naivety that comes, especially with members of the church. They don't want to hear about certain general authorities and certain views. They don't want to hear or discuss certain policies or they want to say, well, there's things we won't ever understand. Or it's like, no, actually the church has a stance on it. And they completely disavow things from before or even words matter like oh well it was revelation to take away no it's even on what i sent you the church does not call it revelation the church calls it a policy like you i remember you had a conversation where i was talking about policy it explicitly states it was a policy and so there's a lot of things that i think we need to you know that need to be discussed about that we kind of zoom out and talk about it kind of like maybe like because, yeah, I, I know I took note of that specifically what you sent me is like it does say policy. Mm-hmm. But then what's fascinating to me, and this is something that's like I kind of hesitate to mention now because I know we can get into it. But this is something we'll we'll reserve for part two. But it's it's fascinating how when policy is established, it's almost like it takes revelation True. to unestablish I know. it. And that's an interesting catch 22 that kind of goes on there. Well, <laughs> and that's not always the case. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm no, it's to, not. I, I agree. I'm trying to think of examples of in the time that I've been a member of the church that I've seen. That policy had like, oh, well, policy no more. <laughs> and yeah, it's yeah. not in the back of my scriptures. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> Take away the policy. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, so we're selective about our policies and which require revelation and not. But I think that's why these discussions of understanding product, and I don't even like to say products of time because I think there's some that I, people I don't give passes to, and I don't think in this church. Sure where we should even use that when the founder of the church, Joseph Smith, frankly, was ahead of his time. <laughs> yeah, it says that very directly and all that, which is cool to look at. And then you're kind of like, huh, what changed there? And yeah. you're like, you're, you're wondering how much of, of a role personality plays into that. Yeah, and it's got I, to, right? I will just kind of leave it with this. And maybe this will kind of set the stage for a part two is that it's okay. And I understand I'm going to ruffle feathers, but it is what it is. Um, and I think you have to kind of be spiritually mature enough to accept this is that racist policies of the past are not revealed by God, but they can be instituted through racist individuals. Do you know what I mean? That's interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. God, that's, no, that's... God is not a racist. God is not going to... So we spend so much... God's not a race. No, frankly, <laughs> right? he's not. And honestly, yeah. when yeah. it comes to God, as far as like, if we stick to doctrine and who Jesus Christ is, he is not white. Yeah, 100% agree. <laughs> we yeah. need to just let that yeah. go. So, For sure. I mean, so yeah, it's God is no respecter of person. So racist policies do not, they are not revealed by God. They can be misunderstood by racist individuals and instituted by racist individuals who could be products of their time. But I feel that it's unfair to place accountability on God for racist policies instead of holding accountability for the weakness of man and the law of agency. Because when we say, oh, that's what God wanted, we take away agency. We take our own accountability away. And I just feel like that's unfair to God. 
I think that's very well stated. It does give a great segue into the the next time we meet, which will be sooner than later. That I promise. And I can't thank you enough for taking time out to speak with me about this, Lisa. These are not easy topics, but you and I have talked about heavy topics before and I've always enjoyed it, which is why I was like, I, I know I have to get Lisa on at some point if she's available and willing. Yeah, well, and thank you so much. Seriously. Hopefully I didn't turn people away and we can, you know, smooth it out or at least like make it more palatable or help people better understand what we're getting to eventually, you know, so that way it's not people are just mad. At ah, if they got offended, it's their own damn fault. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we can invalidate that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, Lisa, seriously, thank you so much. I really, really, really appreciate your time. Of course. Thanks, Arthur. There's an hourglass sitting on my table I'm watching Cause everything's changing my mind Goes to a different time Old love, I remember falling so madly There must have been magic in the valley And a rhythm in the night I could almost see it Did you fade right out of you If it takes time